TVA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 7, Cancelled Ice Age, featuring William Rudiman. For the past 7,000 years, humans have stabilized the global climate. The greenhouse gases emitted through deforestation, agriculture and husbandry prevented the onset of a new glaciation. Only since the Industrial Revolution has human influence gotten out of hand, causing rapid rises in temperature and sea level. I'm Ingo Niermann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amoris, and today I'm talking to William Ruddyman, geologist and originator of the early Anthropocene hypothesis. He speaks from his home in Virginia. This is uh, Bill Ruddyman, and I am a recently retired scientist whose career has ranged widely across uh, what you might call climate science or environmental science. My career stretches back more than 50 years. And even though I'm retired, I keep up with the literature around my most recent work so that I can respond to uh, criticisms and compliments. You started your work um, as a marine geologist, right? Uh, that's right. I went to uh, Williams College for my bachelor's degree, which I got in geology. I had started off thinking about being an engineer, but I found that too dry. And then I thought I might be an architect, but I decided I was not creative enough. And so I turned to uh, geology and environmental science, and that felt just right. So I, uh, I was taking a class as a junior in college 
in paleontology and the professor came in with a small vial filled with a um, sample of planktonic foraminifera, which are sand-sized organisms which live in surface waters. And he also brought in two papers that uh, had to do with how those creatures are used. And both papers dealt with ways to try to track glacial history. And my first reaction was, this is really interesting. I wasn't an overly curious person, but this fascinated me. And it led to a decision. So I went to graduate school at Columbia in marine geology because uh, that's where the best climate records are recorded, including these organisms I had seen in that class. And so I went to Columbia's Lamont Observatory, and that was the start of my career. So the reason you went into marine geology was not a particular fascination with the ocean. Um, it was the ocean sediments as a recorder of climatic history, and in particular, uh, glacial history are relatively undisturbed. That gives scientists a great advantage in unraveling the history compared to the land where sediments briefly get deposited here and there, but then get eroded. And so the record is not very complete. So I started off, I think of my research career as having three phases of uh, emphasis. Uh, the first lasted for 15 years, and it involved track, tracking the history of glacial cycles in the North Atlantic. I was working at the U.S. Naval Oceanographic Office with a group that was like almost like a university geology department, and I was using various indicators, including these sand-sized plankton which float in the surface water and then die and fall to the bottom where they record the glacial history in the sediments. Also included in those sediments is debris from the continents dropped by floating icebergs. And so the interglacial levels with climates like today are tan white layers filled with shells of plankton almost white, but the, the uh, glacial layers are gray and they're filled with debris dropped by icebergs from the ice sheets. So I found that the North Atlantic uh, filled with icebergs and, and cold waters down to around Portugal and Newfoundland, the water up there got very cold during glacial cycles uh, and warmed up during the interglacial cycles. Mm -hmm. And then the second phase? Well, let's see, somewhere around the 1984, I was co-chief on the drill ship 
run by the National Science Foundation. Uh, this is a unique ship, nothing like it anywhere uh, on Earth. Uh, and that it drilled down through these se sequences of glacial sediments, and it eventually reached the bottom of the glacial sequences, meaning that was the start of the ice ages. And that occurred 2.7 million years ago. Now, I, as co-chief of that cruise, it was customary to write a summary of the results. And that led me to consider possible causes of the cooling climate that led to the glacial sequences. And I was looking for some kind of major change in Earth's continents that had occurred during this long cooling, which had, had lasted 40 to 50 million years and eventually produced the ice age cycles. And so I looked into all the suggested causes and ruled them out for one reason or another. But I noticed one that had not been suggested and looked promising. And that was the uplift of the Tibetan plateau that had occurred in the last 50 million years, the same time that this cooling was underway. I thought maybe the uplift of this gigantic plateau, four or five kilometers high and about a third the size of the United States in extent, I thought maybe the uplift of the plateau through its physical effects on atmospheric circulation and in particular the jet stream might have explained cooling in the areas that became glaciated. And John Kutzbach of University of Wisconsin and I ran general circulation model experiments to test that idea. And so it seems that as the Tibetan plateau uplifted during the last 40 or 50 million years, it produced more chemical weathering, partly because the uplift produced debris, which is easily weathered, and partly because uplift of the plateau also caused or produced monsoon circulation, which is a tropical phenomenon. So that study of the Tibetan plateau was my second career phase. And then the, the third career phase came uh, after I moved to the University of Virginia in 1991. So in the late 1990s, some very important ice core results began to come in. And one result caught my attention. I noticed that the methane value was high 11,000 years ago, and that agreed with the strong orbital uh, forcing summer insulation. So high summer insulation was filling methane emitting wetlands. And then methane fell from 11,000 to 5,000 years ago as insulation was decreasing and as wetlands were drying up. But then I noticed something that didn't seem right. And that was that the methane trend began to rise around 5,000 years ago. And that seemed like it was going the wrong way from what it should be doing because the insulation forcing was decreasing and the wetlands are drying up. So why would methane be rising? 
And after some searching, I decided that the cause was humans and the methane was coming from rice paddies and livestock. The data were very sparse, but as I came to find out, and as uh, uh, other scientists have found out, uh, they filled in the story that rice paddies and livestock did uh, begin to be prominent increase in abundance around 5,000 years ago, just when the methane trend was beginning to, to rise instead of fall. So my later work on the same topic focused on carbon dioxide. And this led to pretty much the same story that the CO2 values increased, reached a peak around 11 or 10,000 years ago, just like in previous interglacials and decreased until 7,000 years ago. But at 7,000 years ago, the CO2 trend reversed and rose, which was different from all the previous interglaciations. And I proposed that the cause was deforestation, which early farmers were doing. Uh, and the, the deforestation was done to open up uh, areas for growing crops and um, putting livestock out to field in, in pastures. That you can't grow crops or have livestock uh, unless you have sunlight and you have to cut trees. And so deforestation after 7,000 years ago looked like a reasonable cause for the anomalous CO2 rise. And work done in the last 20 years since I first proposed that, that uh, cause and effect relationship has supported the idea that deforestation began uh, on a large scale about that time. At first, mostly in China and Europe, and then spreading towards other regions. Well, time for me to pause and let you comment. What uh, were the effects of this rise in CO2 and methane in the atmosphere? Well, basically, this is a, a second part of my hypothesis, and that is that the rise in carbon dioxide after 7,000 years ago and the rise in methane after 5,000 years ago warmed climate at first to a very small extent, but then more and more as, as the levels grew higher and higher, which they did for millennia. If you look at previous interglacials, you can see that the typical trend for climate after reaching this early interglacial peak in considerable part because of these two uh, greenhouse gases, CO2 and methane. Uh, these are gases that are one of the major controls on climate. So they reached large peaks. And then in previous interglaciations, the, the climate trend drifted towards cooler and cooler conditions just naturally. And so, but what happened in this interglacial is that the cooling trend did not develop the way it had in previous interglaciations. 
and instead the temperature of the planet stayed about the same or increased very slightly. And the obvious conclusion to me was that it was the rise in these two greenhouse gases over the last several thousand years that stopped a natural cooling. So one way to test that, and again, I'm, I was working with John Kutzbach and also Steve Bavris at University of Wisconsin, was to run general circulation model experiments which reproduce the climate under a given set of assumptions. And so we put the general things that control climate, not where they are today, but to the levels they would have reached if humans had not intervened. And our experiments have shown that uh, in small areas in the Arctic regions, Siberia islands, and especially in the Northeast uh, North America region, uh, where Ellesmere Island is, uh, and various other islands in that region. This area has long been proposed by a small number of scientists as the area where ice sheets get started. Uh, eventually, they come to cover most of Canada, but they have to start somewhere. We found that permanent snow cover occurred in those regions, which ends snow began to pile up deeper and deeper, and that would eventually have led to ice sheets. So the takeaway from this finding is that the uh, greenhouse gases that humans put into the atmosphere after 7,000 and 5,000 years ago stopped a natural cooling, which would have led to the start of a glaciation. So we don't have a, a start of a glaciation today, but we would have if we hadn't put greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which is a fairly dramatic uh, statement. From our uh, general circulation model experiments, we estimate that the world just before the Industrial Revolution would have been about one degree centigrade cooler, which doesn't sound like much, but um, temperature changes amplify as you get nearer and nearer to the polar regions um, so that by the time you're up in that area near Ellesmere Island, right around the Arctic, the temperature changes reconstructed by our models are in the vicinity of three, four, five degrees centigrade, which is quite large. The average rise of uh, temperature since the beginning of the industrialization is as well around one degree, right? Yeah, that's right. So, so the warming effect, which is actually not literally a warming, it's a stopping of a cooling, but the warming effect before the Industrial Revolution is about the same amplitude as the warming caused by the Industrial Revolution. I should clarify that the increase in greenhouse gases during the Industrial Revolution is, is uh, much, much larger than the increase in greenhouse gases that I propose in my hypothesis. But there are two factors that reduce some of the uh, industrial era warming. One is that we also pump out sulfate aerosols from our industries, and those aerosols 
cool the climate and counteract part of the uh, greenhouse gas warming. The other uh, effect is that we haven't been doing pumping out greenhouse gases at a rapid rate in the industrial era for, for all that long. And the climate system, mainly the ocean, hasn't had the time to uh, register the full warming that it will register if we allow enough time to go on. Does your theory has an impact on our understanding of the current climate change? Um, the way I see that is that when it comes to the last 200 years or so, the Industrial Revolution and its effects on climate, I'm, I'm what you might call a mainstream climate scientist. So my hypothesis does not rewrite the Industrial Revolution part of the climate story. Uh, what it does, though, is it adds a, a different foundation for the starting point of the greenhouse gas era. Uh, there's a related matter that's probably worth getting into, and that is that there's a group, uh, mostly geologists, international in scope, but heavily European, that are trying to define the Anthropocene as starting, well, initially they were going to recommend 1850, but now they seem to have switched to somewhere around 1950. And they're choosing 1950 because there are chemical isotopes from the bomb fallout, that be, bomb testing that began around that time. And, and so they're proposing that's the start of the Anthropocene. And I have been a vocal advocate against that. My comment is, how can you ignore thousands of years of human effects on the planet prior to 1950 or prior to 1850? Most of the forests that have been cut to date were cut by 1850, maybe two thirds, maybe three quarters of the forest were already cut by then. So how can you define the Anthropocene as not including the cutting of most of the world's forests? If you looked at Earth from near space, the cutting of the forests would be the largest change uh, since 10,000 years ago. So in my mind, using a definition that's very recent, like 1850 or 1950, leaves out this enormous story. And it leaves out other stories, other environmental changes uh, that had occurred thousands of years ago. Couldn't you even argue that the whole Holocene shows evidence of this human interference? Yeah, well, that leads to a larger issue, which supports my view, and that is there's evidence for human effects on climate that go back a very long time. One is that when humans first arrived in Australia, which was around 40,000 years ago, there was a, a great uh, loss of mammals especially mammals larger than human size. 
And there's a considerable body of thought that that loss of mammals was due to humans killing them. As similarly, something like 80% of the large animals in the North and South America were exterminated very quickly around 12 to 11,000 years ago. And that's the time that large numbers of humans are recorded as first arriving. So um, you could, if you wanted to, you could put the Anthropocene there uh, or back 40,000 years ago in Australia. And it makes no sense to me to define any point in time as the Anthropocene, capital A. The Anthropocene is a evolving phenomenon that starts very early and in very patchy ways and grows through time, which is a reason not to pick any time as the start of the Anthropocene. Hunting also included, um, like in the Stone Age, burning of forest. Uh, but this didn't really have an impact on, on the climate? Uh, right. Hunter-gatherers did. Some of them would burn forests, which stimulated growth of fruits and berries, which was part of their diet. And it also attracted mammals to the areas that had been burned. But this kind of burning was mostly patchy uh, in extent. And it moved around so people would burn one region and you know, get the berries and the nuts and kill the mammals that came in. But then they would go and burn a different region. And while they were in this different region, the original forests would grow back. So this didn't leave any major effect on forest extent or greenhouse gases. The changes that began around 7,000 years ago, both in Europe and in China, were coincident with the start of settled agriculture. And there's growing evidence that as people settled down and began to grow crops and grow livestock, uh, their numbers increased dramatically. And that, that was because they had more uh, stable food sources. So the number of humans grew rapidly and that became an effect on greenhouse gases. Your theory has been heavily contested. How do your critics argue? Um, I, I would say in the case of methane, my hypothesis is on solid ground in most people's mind. Uh, carbon dioxide is a different story. There, there is more opposition to my ideas, and it's coming mainly from geochemists who uh, have a, a variety of ideas why the hypothesis is wrong. One is that there can't have been enough humans to increase the CO2 values beginning 7,000 years ago. But that criticism runs up against the fact that there are huge increases in numbers of humans measured by archaeological sites in north central China at 7,000 years ago and in Europe after 6,000 years ago. 
the other reason for opposition of my hypothesis is extremely difficult to ex explain. It involves an isotope of uh, CO2 that it's the it's carbon-13 isotope is a measure of the amount of uh, terrestrial carbon being put into the atmosphere. And that index does not change as much as it should if humans are burning large amounts of forests. And that criticism came from uh, two very well-respected scientists, uh, Wally Broker and Tom Stocker. Uh, they, they made that criticism back in 2004. But it has turned out since then that during the last 7,000 years, there has been an enormous amount of burial of uh, peat in the Canadian peat bogs. So this burial of heat offsets the most of the burning of the forests. And are there differences in the perception of your theory in the Western and in the non-Western world? The two countries with the largest early effects of early environmental change are, as I mentioned, China and, well, Europe, the, that region. And so people working in those regions view my hypothesis somewhat more positively. Most Americans do not work in those regions. So there's a bit of a bias there. Uh, I'm not sure I answered your question, though. No, I, I would go even a bit further that, in a sense, you know, even the Anthropocene is underlining the exception of, of humans. We now know that we are really a catastrophe to the world, but at the same time, you know, we are an exceptional catastrophe. And with locating the Anthropocene, let's say it starts with the industrialization or it starts after Second World War, then it's still something that got initiated by the Western world. This is what I'm wondering, if it has to do with white uh, suprematism. Well, several things went in and out of my mind, and they all, uh, let me see, let me think for a minute. Oh, uh, so there are people who looked at modern yearly emissions of carbon dioxide and ranked the country's emissions and assigned blame based on modern yearly emissions. But there are other people who have calculated the history of emissions and integrated the amount of emissions over uh, time going back into the early Anthropocene. So in that case, uh, China and Europe would be early contributors to the carbon dioxide, also the region in Southwest Asia, uh, whereas North America was not much of a contributor before 1700. So if you're looking to assign blame, that reduces the North American portion of blame. Before you came up with the theory of the early Anthropocene, what was the common explanation for a slowed down cooling after this peak? Uh, it was simply uh, orbital uh, changes. The clue or the critical factor is summer insulation. Uh, you have different insulation in all the different seasons, but summer insulation is 
particularly uh, important to ice sheets and in the Northern Hemisphere also to sea ice. And the reason for, for the ice sheet effect is that if summer insulation gets high enough, it can melt all the ice. And so there is no ice age, no glacial period. But if summer insulation decreases a little bit, some of the snow from a given summer will persist and that leads to a buildup of snow and it leads to glaciers and ice sheets. But the greenhouse gases the humans put in the atmosphere countered that orbital effect, that natural orbital cooling that was gonna uh, cause a glaciation. We don't know exactly when the next glaciation would have started that is, let's say, ice sheets in northern Canada, but it would probably have been four, three, two thousand years ago. In the Middle Ages, there was um, what is called the Little Ice Age, which is, following your theory, the result of certain plagues that were prevalent at that time, also maybe the Western discovery of the Americas. So. Could you explain this a bit? I mean, this was a heavy effect like in the other direction, right? Um, well, the Little Ice Age is a kind of a misnomer. There, uh, there are areas where it gets cold in certain centuries and other areas where it doesn't get cold. Um, the ice core data that I was looking at showed a very prominent decrease in CO2, not a very large one, but it's quite prominent, uh, which starts in the early 1500s and culminates around 1610. And the drop, total drop is seven to 10 parts per million. Now that's not a big effect, but it's enough to make climate noticeably cooler, even in the mid latitudes. So subset of my hypothesis was that this, this time, this interval corresponds to the arrival of Europeans in the Americas. And the correlation's pretty good. Uh, the, uh, the Europeans go into the Aztec areas, the Inca areas and other uh, regions beginning in the 1520s and culminating uh, somewhat later, when the Europeans arrive, most of the Native Americans die off. Now, the Europeans aren't just killing them, they're infecting them with diseases, and they're unconscious of what they're doing. Now, these are mo mostly Spanish, of course, at this point. So estimates that going back, I guess, about 40, 50 years, and recently confirmed more and more, show that mortality rates among uh, these indigenous peoples were in the range of about 85 to 90%. And most of the Native Americans had a mixed hunter-gatherer and farmer way of life. And so when 85 to 90% of them died, they stopped tending their fields, which consisted of corn and beans and a few other things, and the forests grew back. 
and of course, uh, took CO2 out of the atmosphere, put the carbon into the trees. Mm, and how about what was going on in Europe around the same time? There were also many plagues. The big plagues in Europe occurred in the 1350 to 1400 time frame. And, and then there was other ones back uh, several hundred years AD. So I originally proposed that those plagues corresponded to modest dips in the CO2 record. But as more detailed CO2 records came in, they basically showed that the, the small, very small CO2 dips did not correlate very clearly with the plagues. So the major effect of this kind was the wiping out of indigenous Americans in the 1500s up until the early 1600s. Mm -hmm. This uh, little ice age, it really got noticeably cooler in Europe. Do you know how big was the effect? Yeah, I'm not completely up to date, but um, basically the little ice age was quite large in an area from Northwest Europe stretching out, I think, to Iceland. But you can look at other regions like North America, uh, Europe, more towards the Mediterranean part of Europe, uh, Asia, and it's, it's not that big a deal. The interesting thing about the early Anthropocene is that it created this almost balance for thousands of years. The natural cooling down and then humans kind of uh, leveled it out. They counteracted it. Yeah, that is, it is pretty, pretty amazing. But it's an accident, no? It happened by chance. Uh, basically, yes, it is. On, on the one side, um, this uh, is why people who are in denial of, of climate change cannot really believe that things are suddenly changing drastically. But I wonder if also people who are in acceptance of climate change, there is this misconception that uh, usually in nature everything is stable. And then humans come and they spoil the situation. Well, of course, we had the glacial, interglacial cycles, and, and they were enormous in amplitude. They were very large. Global climate changed by, if I remember right, about five degrees centigrade from peak warmth in interglacials to peak cold in the glacials. So we've been talking about early anthropogenic or modern changes of a degree or a degree point to centigrade. So compare that to the five degree centigrade where our human effects now are, are beginning to register in important ways, but they're nothing like the size of the glacial interglacial cycles. It is interesting when you look at, at sea level rise in times I think even just between uh, 12 and 7,000 years ago, there was a rapid rise of, is that correct, 60 meters? Um, I don't know the latest, uh, but there was a rapid rise in sea level. Between the glacial maximum 20,000 years ago and the interglacial maximum, say, 10,000 to 8,000, 
thousand years ago, the rise is thought to be 120 meters or so. And when you think of it, like per year, there were rises of uh, several centimeters a year. Again, I don't know the exact numbers, but they were quite rapid compared to anything we're seeing right now because these great ice sheets were melting and the climate was warming. Since the late 19th century, the sea level rise is between, what is it, 20, 25 centimeters over more than 100 years. So currently it's speeding up. It's now more than three millimeters a year. But it's still like only maybe a tenth of what happened during that time of the warming up after the last ice age. Yeah, one thing is there's not that much vulnerable ice sheets around to melt. Greenland doesn't melt very fast because it's hemmed in by mountains and Antarctica sits far to the south and most of it is out of reach. The ocean, the relatively warm parts of the ocean attack the Antarctic ice sheet, but the what I would call the vulnerable ice sheets, like the ones in North America and Europe, are gone. So it's not surprising that the ones that are left melt more slowly. Mm -hmm. And the warming's not that large yet. Yeah, That's also, of course, a warning that things could get much worse if we have a lot of warming. I wonder if stories, like biblical stories uh, of the Agnoa, um, they were related to this experience of massive uh, sea level rise. Um, most of the rates of sea level rise, even when they were very fast, it's the kind of thing that you could stroll casually away from them. It, it, you would just walk away from them. But there are some exceptions. Um, when the sea level drops far enough, the Black Sea gets isolated from the Mediterranean and it's in a dry climate, so it can melt. And there's also some evidence that when the ocean started to rise and it breached the Sea of Marmara, there was a great inpouring of ocean water through the gap and the water in the Black Sea rose very quickly. So some of those changes in isolated seas uh, might have been large enough to be worthy of being documented. But you have these stories by Aborigines about islands that no longer exist. And then it was found out that, yeah, they disappeared because of the sea level rise. So stories that were passed over thousands of years. Right. If there would have been no human intervention, would the cooling down have continued for a longer period of time? or It's a little hard to tell, but the main factor in the orbital variations at high latitudes is tilt. And tilt, that summer insulation from effect from tilt continues decreasing till about 10,000 years from now. And, you know, what, what first would have occurred would be small ice sheets in the far northern reaches of Northeast Canada and scattered along the islands north on the coasts of Siberia. But at some point, 
the ice sheets would have grown and uh, moved south. And ice sheets also uh, generate their own climate because they stop the sun from reaching the soil. Instead, the sun is reflected off the ice. So uh, the ice sheets would have grown for 10,000 or whatever, 15,000 years. But um, based on previous glaciations, it would not probably not have been like the maximum we had 20,000 years ago. That developed through several cycles. And, uh, you know, the first cycle of glaciation brings ice sheets to a modest size, and the next one makes it a little larger, and maybe the third one makes it a very large glaciation. So cycles of ice sheets getting larger and larger, and then finally reaching a maximum like 20,000 years ago, and then disappearing in North America and Europe. And if you want to know the reason for that pattern, that's a major research topic. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Well, I think it's slight variations in the strength of the summer insulation peaks that drive the melting. Some melting is incomplete, but it, eventually after two or three oscillations, you get a insulation peak large enough to get rid of the, the ice. That is the ice on North America and the ice in Europe, but not Greenland. Greenland stays around. And this like human-made climate change, does this pause the whole glacial, interglacial cycles? Are they now kind of interrupted? Yes, I, I've made that claim. Well, several people have made the claim that greenhouse gas CO2 levels now are high enough. There can't be another glaciation. CO2 would have to come down from whatever it is now. It's over like 410 or something. It would have to come down to somewhere in the range of 320 or 300 or less to permit ice sheets to grow. It's too high to come down that far. So we have stopped the glacial cycles. I said that a long time ago with respect to my hypothesis. I said we stopped the glacial cycles thousands of years ago. So you think we stopped uh, this already before the onset of the Industrial Revolution? I do think so. And how about uh, methane? As you said, for this human-made climate change, uh, methane was uh, just as important as uh, carbon dioxide. It really isn't. It has a larger effect in warming the climate per molecule compared to CO2, but it's much less abundant than CO2. So CO2 is most of the message for what's going to happen. There seems to be like an increase in, in methane in the atmosphere since 2007. Now that, to my knowledge, that's not well understood. Some of it appears to be due to fracking. Uh, there's other theories, I think, uh, related to the permafrost in Siberia or that methane plethrate could be released from the seabed? From what I know, there's still major arguments about how much methane will be released. There's a lot of methane down in the permafrost in the Arctic. 
But the problem is it's hard to melt the permafrost from the top down. And what about methane clathrate? Well, it's partly the same thing. The clathrates are down in ocean sediments, sediments along the borders of the Arctic Ocean. And uh, they are also hard to reach uh, with warm waters. But again, I'm not a real expert on that. I would think of like two drastic scenarios. One is humans would really burn all fossil fuels that they can get hold of. They would continue uh, with uh, husbandry, with rice fields, with everything to the max. What do you think, to which degree could we still heat up the atmosphere? I don't know how to estimate a good value, but uh, I guess from what I can recall, uh, sea level is going to come up by three or four or five meters by the end of this century or not too long after. Um, we go to the beach in Delaware. In fact, we're just back from it. And the place we stay normally is on a one of the barrier islands that run down the east coast and the gulf coast of, of North America and where the hotel is that we stay in, there's no place in that town that's higher than five feet in elevation. So sea level is, is going to flood that entire place, that town we stay in. And it, in fact, it's going to flood the barrier islands everywhere down the East Coast and the Gulf Coast of North America, unless something radical is done and nothing radical is on the horizon. So, uh, I mean, that's a measure of how huge the effect is going to be. And it's going to come slowly. It's not going to be a sudden disaster. It's going to be a centimeter at a, at a time kind of disaster. And could it rise even more? What was the highest like sea level in the history of Earth? Well, during the ice ages, the highest interglacial sea level was, I think, five, six, seven meters above uh, the present day. That was around 125,000 years ago. And it was caused by uh, a very strong summer insulation peak that melted more ice than normal. But if you go back prior to the beginning of the Ice Age cycles, if you go back to three million years ago, at that point, there was no ice on the continents. And uh, I don't know how high sea level is thought to have gotten, gotten at that point. Uh, if you go back far enough in time and there's no, Antarct no Antarctic ice sheet, that's... Uh, something like 70 meters of sea level and Greenland's another seven. Like burning all fossil fuels and uh, complete deforestation would be enough to to melt whole Antarctica? Well the deforestation is it's still a factor it's not a major factor but burning all fo fossil fuels I don't know the answer to that but my suspicion is it would be enough to melt 
all of Greenland and much of Antarctica and to just flood vast areas of the continents. But I don't want to uh, pretend to be a specialist on that. And the other extreme, what if, let's say, we would follow the path of uh, deep ecologists, we would rapidly reduce the human population, no more procreation or very, very limited procreation, um, no use of fossil fuels anymore, radical reforestation. This is completely speculative now, but imagine this would be implemented in the next, I don't know, 50 years. Um, would then there still be a chance to get back into these uh, cycles of glaciation? and kind of get back into an, an ice age? Um, I think eventually that would happen, but um, the problem is if you think about the amount of CO2 we've put into the atmosphere, uh, if you stop putting any CO2 into the atmosphere, something like 50% of what we have added would come back out of the atmosphere, go into the ocean mainly in 50 years, 50% in 50 years. And so that's a pretty quick response, but the rest of the CO2 is harder to get out. And the last 15% or so of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of the part we've put in would stay around for probably thousands of years. And that residue of our fossil fuel CO2 would probably be enough to stop uh, a glaciation well, well into the future. Even with the radical uh, reforestation, you couldn't suck these 15% out of the air? It's wrong to think of it as having a half-life uh, because it has a asymmetrical reduction pattern. And like I said, 50% in 50 years, which is very rapid, and then a much slower tail for the last 10 or 20%, which takes thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. So one would really have to do get into some really like active terraforming to, to suck this uh, CO2 out of the atmosphere, one would have to, I don't know, start a lot of seaweed plantations maybe to continue the forestation as well underwater. Well, the thing that most people consider uh, is pumping sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere since they cool climate. And it could be done from ships at sea or could be done any number of ways. But the problem is that the cooling effect that causes, it's hard to know exactly how that would be distributed. And it also has the rather dismal effect. It would take blue skies away and make the sky look kind of a hazy light brown because of the aerosol content. And that seems like a horrible price to pay. Yeah, it's a bit like the nuclear winter. That's another scenario. It just... Uh... Yeah. You drop several nuclear bombs. And I mean, I still grew up with the fear of nuclear winter because of an eventual nuclear war. 
I was a relatively young scientist when that was being considered. And I mean, it doesn't have to be Russia and the United States. It could be Pakistan and India. You'd get a fairly substantial nuclear cooling effect out of that, in addition to the rest of the horrible result. This was the seventh episode of Ocean Wants, featuring William Roddyman. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dertunk.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.